Section 6 of Billy Budd by Herman Melville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Scientific Methodist. Chapter 13 This incident sorely puzzled Billy Budd. It was an entirely new experience, the first time in his life that he had ever been personally approached in underhand, intriguing fashion. Prior to this encounter, he had known nothing of the after-guardsman, the two men being stationed wide apart, one forward and aloft during his watch, the other on deck and aft. What could it mean? And could they really be guineas, those two glittering objects the interloper had held up to his, Billy's, eyes? Where could the fellow get guineas? Why, even buttons, spare buttons, are not so plentiful at sea. The more he turned the matter over, the more he was nonplussed, and made uneasy and discomforted. In his disgustful recoil from an overture which, though he but ill comprehended, he instinctively knew must involve evil of some sort, Billy Bud was like a young horse fresh from the pasture suddenly inhaling a vile whiff from some chemical factory, and by repeated snortings tries to get it out of his nostrils and lungs. This frame of mind barred all desire of holding further parley with the fellow, even were it but for the purpose of gaining some enlightenment as to his design in approaching him. And yet he was not without natural curiosity to see how such a visitor in the dark would look in broad day. He espied him the following afternoon in his first dog-watch below, one of the smokers on that forward part of the upper gun-deck allotted to the pipe. He recognized him by his general cut and build, more than by his round freckled face and glassy eyes of pale blue veiled with lashes all but white. And yet Billy was a bit uncertain whether indeed it were he, yonder chap about his own age, chatting and laughing in free-hearted way, leaning against a gun, a genial young fellow enough to look at, and something of a rattle-brain to all appearance. Rather chubby, too, for a sailor, even an after-guardsman. In short, the last man in the world, one would think, to be overburdened with thoughts, especially those perilous thoughts that must needs belong to a conspirator in any serious project, or even to the underling of such a conspirator. Although Billy was not aware of it, the fellow with a sidelong watchful glance had perceived Billy first, and then noting that Billy was looking at him, thereupon nodded a familiar sort of friendly recognition as to an old acquaintance, without interrupting the talk he was engaged in with the group of smokers. A day or two afterwards, chancing in the evening promenade on a gun deck to pass Billy, he offered a flying word of good fellowship, as it were, which by its unexpectedness and equivocalness under the circumstances, so embarrassed Billy that he knew not how to respond to it, and let it go unnoticed. Billy was now left more at a loss than before. The ineffectual speculations into which he was led were so disturbingly alien to him that he did his best to smother them. It never entered his mind that here was a matter which, from its extreme questionableness, it was his duty as a loyal bluejacket to report in the proper quarter. And, probably, had such a step been suggested to him, he would have been deterred from taking it by the thought, one of novice magnanimity, that it would savor over much of the dirty work of a tell-tale. He kept the thing to himself. Yet upon one occasion he could not forbear a little disburdening himself to the old dansker, tempted thereto perhaps by the influence of a balmy night when the ship lay becalmed. The twain, silent for the most part, sitting together on deck, their heads propped against the bulwarks. But it was only a partial and anonymous account that Billy gave, the unfounded scruples above referred to preventing full disclosure to anybody. 
Upon hearing Billy's version, the sage dansker seemed to divine more than he was told, and after a little meditation, during which his wrinkles were pursed as into a point, quite effacing for the time that quizzing expression his face sometimes wore, "'Didn't I say so, baby bud?' "'Say what?' demanded Billy. "'Why, Jemmy Legs is down on you.' "'And what,' rejoined Billy in amazement, "'has Jemmy Legs to do with that cracked afterguardsman?' "'Ho, oh, it was an afterguardsman, then.' A cat's paw, a cat's paw. And with that exclamation, which whether it had reference to a light puff of air just then coming over the calm sea, or subtler relation to the afterguardsman, there is no telling. The old Merlin gave a twisting wrench with his black teeth at his plug of tobacco, vouchsafing no reply to Billy's impetuous question, for it was his wont to relapse into grim silence when interrogated in skeptical sort as to any of his sententious oracles, not always very clear ones, rather partaking of that obscurity which invests most Delphic deliverances from any quarter. Chapter 14 Long experience had very likely brought this old man to that bitter prudence which never interferes in aught and never gives advice. Yet despite the Dansker's pithy insistence as to the master-at-arms being at the bottom of these strange experiences of Billy on board the Indomitable, the young sailor was ready to ascribe them to almost anybody but the man who, to use Billy's own expression, always had a pleasant word for him. This is to be wondered at, yet not so much to be wondered at. In certain matters, some sailors, even in mature life, remain unsophisticated enough. But a young seafarer of the disposition of our athletic foretopman is much of a child man, and yet a child's utter innocence is but its blank ignorance and the innocence more or less wanes as intelligence waxes. But in Billy Budd, intelligence, such as it was, had advanced, while yet his simple-mindedness remained for the most part unaffected. Experience is a teacher indeed, yet did Billy's years make his experience small. Besides, he had none of that intuitive knowledge of the bad which in nature's not good or incompletely so foreruns experience, and therefore may pertain, as in some instances it too clearly does pertain, even to youth. And what could Billy know of man except of man as a mere sailor? And the old-fashioned sailor, the veritable man before the mast, the sailor from boyhood up, he, though indeed of the same species as a landsman, is in some respects singularly distinct from him. The sailor is frankness, the landsman is finesse. Life is not a game with the sailor, demanding the long head. No intricate game of chess where few moves are made in straightforwardness, but ends are attained by indirection. An oblique, tedious, barren game hardly worth that poor candle burnt out in playing it. Yet, as a class, sailors are in character a juvenile race. Even their deviations are marked by juvenility, and this more especially holding true with the sailors of Billy's time. Then, too, certain things which apply to all sailors do more pointedly operate here and there upon the junior one. Every sailor, too, is accustomed to obey orders without debating them. His life afloat is externally ruled for him. He is not brought into that promiscuous commerce with mankind where unobstructed free agency on equal terms, equal superficially at least, soon teaches one that unless upon occasion he exercises a distrust keen in proportion to the fairness of the appearance, some foul turn may be served him. A ruled, undemonstrative distrustfulness is so habitual, not with businessmen so much as with men who know their kind in less shallow relations than business, namely certain men of the world, 
that they come at last to employ it all but unconsciously, and some of them would very likely feel real surprise at being charged with it as one of their general characteristics. Chapter 15 But after the little matter at the mess, Billy Budd no more found himself in strange trouble at times about his hammock or his clothes bag or what not. While, as to that smile that occasionally sunned him and the pleasant passing word, these were, if not more frequent, yet, if anything, more pronounced than before. But for all that, there were certain other demonstrations now. When Claggart's unobserved glance happened to light on belted Billy rolling along the upper gun deck in the leisure of the second dog watch, exchanging passing broadsides of fun with other young promenaders in the crowd, that glance would follow the cheerful sea Hyperion with a settled meditative and melancholy expression, his eyes strangely suffused with incipient feverish tears. Then would Claggart look like the man of sorrows. Yes, and sometimes the melancholy expression would have in it a touch of soft yearning, as if Claggart could even have loved Billy but for fate and ban. But this was an evanescence, and quickly repented of, as it were, by an immitigable look pinching and shriveling the visage into the momentary semblance of a wrinkled walnut. But sometimes catching sight in advance of the foretopman coming in his direction, he would, upon their nearing, step aside a little to let him pass, dwelling upon Billy for the moment with the glittering dental satire of a guise. But upon any abrupt, unforeseen encounter, a red light would flash forth from his eye, like a spark from an anvil in a dusk smithy. That quick, fierce light was a strange one, darted from orbs which in repose were of a color nearest approaching a deeper violet, the softest of shades. Though some of these caprices of the pit could not but be observed by their object, yet were they beyond the construing of such a nature, and the thews of Billy were hardly comparable with that sort of sensitive spiritual organization which in some cases instinctively conveys to ignorant innocence an admonition of the proximity of the malign. He thought the master-at-arms acted in a manner rather queer at times. That was all. But the occasional frank air and pleasant word went for what they purported to be the young sailor never having heard as yet of the too-fair-spoken man. Had the foretopman been conscious of having done or said anything to provoke the ill-will of the official, it would have been different with him, and his sight might have been pursed if not sharpened. So was it with him in yet another matter. Two minor officers, the armorer and captain of the hold, with whom he had never exchanged a word, his position on the ship not bringing him into contact with them, these men now for the first time began to cast upon Billy, when they chanced to encounter him, that peculiar glance which evidences that the man from whom it comes has been some way tampered with, and to the prejudice of him upon whom the glance lights. Never did it occur to Billy as a thing to be noted, or a thing suspicious, though he well knew the fact that the armorer and captain of the hold, with the ship's yeoman, apothecary, and others of that grade, were, by naval usage, messmates of the master-at-arms, men with ears convenient to his confidential tongue. Our handsome sailor's manly forwardness upon occasion, and irresistible good nature, indicating no mental superiority tending to excite an invidious feeling, bred general popularity, and this goodwill on the part of most of his shipmates made him the less to concern himself about such mute aspects toward him as those whereto allusion has just been made. As to the after-guardsman, though Billy, for reasons already given, necessarily saw little of him, yet when the two did happen to meet, invariably came the fellow's off-hand cheerful recognition, sometimes accompanied by a passing pleasant word or two, 
whatever that equivocal young person's original design may really have been, or the design of which he might have been the deputy, certain it was from his manner upon these occasions that he had wholly dropped it. It was as if his precocity of crookedness, and every vulgar villain is precocious, had for once deceived him, and the man he had sought to entrap as a simpleton had, through his very simplicity, baffled him. But shrewd ones may opine that it was hardly possible for Billy to refrain from going up to the after-guardsman and bluntly demanding to know his purpose in the initial interview, so abruptly closed in the forechains. Shrewd ones may also think it but natural in Billy to set about sounding some of the other impressed men of the ship in order to discover what basis, if any, there was for the emissary's obscure suggestions as to plotting disaffection aboard. Yes, the shrewd may think so, but something more, or rather, something else than mere shrewdness is perhaps needful for the due understanding of such a character as Billy Budd's. As to Claggart, the monomania in the man, if that indeed it were, as involuntarily disclosed by starts in the manifestations detailed, yet in general covered over by his self-contained and rational demeanor, this, like a subterranean fire, was eating its way deeper and deeper in him. Something decisive must come of it. End of section 6. Recording by Scientific Methodist.